Hey creeps, I'm Taylor and this is TGI Crime Day. Welcome to part two of The Disappearance of Susan Powell. If you haven't listened to part one, go listen to that so you're all caught up to speed for this episode. I'm going to be finishing this case today and it's going to be another long one. So either grab a snack and settle in, get comfy, or if you're like me and you like to listen to podcasts while you're cleaning your house, your house is going to be spotless by the end of this one. Uh, I did want to say a thanks to everyone who listened to part one. Also, it was very exciting because we hit 100 followers over on Instagram, which I know is like tiny compared to these accounts that have like hundreds of thousands of people. But for me, 100 followers was very exciting. Uh, You can join our little creep squad over on Instagram at TGI Crime Day. So go say hi. Send me case recommendations. Talk to me about the the podcast. Talk to me about all of the true crime things. Um, Let's get into today's story because we're going to be here for a while. So as a quick recap from part one, Josh and Susan Powell were at a breaking point in their marriage. They had been constantly fighting and Susan began to keep a paper trail of their fights and was opening up to some of her friends about Josh's controlling behavior. One day in December of 2009, Susan didn't show up for work and no one could get a hold of her. Josh had also missed work that day and couldn't be found anywhere. Eventually, Josh did turn up, claiming that he had taken his two sons, Charlie and Brayden, who were two and four at the time, on a last-second camping trip and had no idea where Susan could be. This story started to fall apart when police noticed that Josh didn't have any proper camping equipment for a winter camping trip and Susan's phone was found inside the van. On a quick inspection of the house, they found that Susan's purse and keys were inside and there didn't appear to be any kind of a struggle or anything out of place other than two large box fans blowing on the living room carpet that appeared to be wet. Odd. Let's get back into our story and go back to the night that Susan disappeared on December 7th, 2009. Like we talked about in last week's episode, Josh and Susan both missed work on Monday, December 7th. Police and family members tried all day to get a hold of Josh and Susan. Neither of them could be reached. Finally, when Josh showed up that evening, he was very surprised that Susan hadn't shown up for work and had no idea where she could be. According to Josh, the day before, which was Sunday, had been totally normal. He said that he and Susan had put the boys to bed around 8 and then watched a movie together. Then after the movie, around 10 o'clock, Susan insisted that he needed to clean the living room carpet with their rug doctor, which is why the carpet was wet when the police got there. Susan then went to bed around midnight, and Josh decided to wake up his two sons, Charlie and Brayden, again, who were 2 and 4 years old at the time, and decided to take them on a middle-of-the-night camping trip. He said that they left around 1.30 to 2 a.m. and started the drive to Simpson Springs, which is about two hours away. So according to Josh, they drove out to a campsite. It would have been around 4 a.m. by the time they got there. They slept for a few hours. They had some s'mores. They roasted some marshmallows for breakfast around 7, and then he drove the two hours home. That somehow took him all day because he didn't get to the house until that evening when his family had been trying to call him literally the entire day. According to Josh, he forgot that it was Sunday night and thought that it was actually Saturday night when he took the boys camping, and that's why he hadn't called into work, because he didn't realize that he had work the next day when he left for his midnight camping trip. Um, Also, Josh said that on the way home, he stopped and got the boys lunch, and then they went through a car wash in Lehigh on a day that was snowing like you do. But silly Josh, he couldn't remember the name or exact location of the car wash, and he paid in cash she said as she rolled her eyes. (laughs) Josh also conveniently couldn't remember exactly which route they'd taken to get to the Pony Express trail near Simpson Springs, but when police searched the family's van, they found some supplies such as blankets and a tarp, a rake, a circular saw, 
a gas can and gas generator, a shovel, a humidifier, and a tote with a few camping supplies. There was no tent, nothing that you would need for building a fire or for sleeping outside in the winter, which is weird. Also in the van, they found that Susan's cell phone was hidden in the center console. Josh completely lied about having it, and he said that he had tried calling her multiple times but couldn't get a hold of her. When police asked Josh about the phone in the van, he said that he must have forgotten to give it back to her after he borrowed it to get some contacts from her. Later, police found that the SIM card had been removed, which meant that they wouldn't be able to track the places that the phone had been. Red flags left and right. So after they searched the van, I'm sure the police were feeling at least uneasy, if not full-blown suspicious at this point, they asked Josh to come down to the station to answer some questions. And as they started talking with him, it was very clear that Josh did not care Susan was missing. He didn't seem worried at all. And he kept asking the police, like, can I leave? Am I good to go? Can I go home? They also asked Josh what was the deal with the last minute camping trip. And again, Josh claimed that he forgot it was Sunday. He thought it was Saturday night, which was why he hadn't called into work. They kept asking him where he thought Susan could be. And he just kept saying he had no idea she should have been at work. He hadn't seen her, etc. He was also showing no emotion or concern for where she could possibly be. Eventually, the police told Josh that he was free to go because he wasn't under arrest and they really didn't have anything to hold him on, but he did say that he would come back the following morning to go over some more questions. Uh, they also asked that they didn't bring the boys with him because during his initial interview, Josh had used Charlene Braden as kind of an excuse to not answer questions. They would ask him something and he would stall by telling the boys that they needed to quit running or he would ask them a question or just basically use them as a distraction. So they asked that he did not bring them back for the next interview. Um, unfortunately, and I think it's just because they didn't have enough evidence to really get a search warrant yet or anything, but they let Josh take the van home and they didn't seal off the house or do any kind of a big search or anything throughout the house. And then Josh proceeded to just deep clean his house and van all night long. Josh was supposed to be at the police station at 9 a.m. the next day, but he didn't show up until about noon. And Josh would plan on giving Jennifer his sister, um, he was planning on having her watch Charlie and Braden so that he could go to this interview. And when Jennifer got to the house that morning around 8.30, because he was supposed to be there at 9, Josh was just taking his time leaving. He wasn't in any kind of a hurry to get there. Jennifer was absolutely shocked when she walked into the house to find that everything was spotless. Josh had washed the blankets and all the clothes that the boys had taken on their camping trip. The garbage had been taken out. Everything had been vacuumed. And the reason Jennifer was so shocked is because never a day in his life did Josh do anything to help out around the house, and now suddenly he was Mary Poppins magically cleaning any evidence away. Weird how that works. Neighbors also said that they saw Josh outside with the van doors wide open, cleaning and vacuuming the interior. So, that's helpful. So finally, Josh rolled into the police station around noon, still without a care in the world and not worried at all about Susan. He told Detective Maxwell, who was the lead detective on this case, that he and Susan were very happy and they loved each other very much and that they never fought which Detective Maxwell knew was a lie because he'd already talked to multiple people about this and everyone brought up how much they fought and how they were very unhappy. When Detective Maxwell asked Josh about this, Josh changed his mind and was like, okay, okay, we did sometimes fight, but it was mostly because Susan thought I was lazy and because I refused to go to church. Again, the finger pointing and <laughs> the gaslighting. We love to see it. Um, also, he tried to point fingers at Susan saying that she was depressed and probably suicidal. Which, according to her own journals, and anyone who knew Susan, she was not suicidal. Depressed? Absolutely. I think it was very obvious from her journals and the way she talked to her friends that she was extremely depressed. However, that does not mean that she was suicidal, and in my opinion, I think that Josh was trying to paint this picture to set up an idea that she ran away on her own. 
Like I said before, Josh was showing very little emotion throughout this interview. He was very flat and he seemed like he was bored. Once in a while, he would start this pathetic attempt at this like sniffling crying thing. He would make his voice sound like he was going to cry. And he just kept saying things that were very vague, like, I don't know where she is. I wish she would just come back. They still didn't have enough evidence to really get a warrant to take the van from Josh. So they still needed to go on his cooperation. Detective Maxwell told Josh it would be a good idea for them to take the van for a few days and take a look at it. And Josh basically told the officers that he would need to think about it for a few days and decide if he wanted them to take the van. And in the interview, the video of this interview, Josh says that, says, you know, the thing about, I need to think about it if I'm going to let you take my stuff or continue talking to me. And Detective Maxwell kind of laughs in disbelief. Like, you can tell that he's shocked and is like, Josh, your wife is missing. What do you mean you need to think about this? Clearly, he is not showing any signs of wanting to help the police find her. So, while Josh was being interviewed, Jennifer had taken the boys to a children's center where either, it was either an officer or a social worker who was trained to talk with kids in these kinds of situations if they have witnessed a crime, possibly. So, they sat down to have a little chat with Charlie and Brayden, and apparently, Charlie said that last night he went camping with Dad, Mom, and Brayden, but that Mom didn't come home because she wanted to stay where the crystals and flowers were. Charlie also said that they went camping at Dinosaur National Park, and this is where things get kind of confusing. So remember, Charlie's only four years old. So when they looked more into the place that he was talking about, they figured out that the Powell family had gone camping in Dinosaur National Monument over the summer. They'd also gone camping multiple times along the Pony Express Trail, where they searched for geodes and were probably the crystals that Charlie was remembering. But that had been months before and two very separate camping trips. So it's possible that he's blending these memories together because in his tiny four-year-old head, he's like, yeah, we went camping and we saw geodes, but mom didn't come home. So he's like mixing up which camping trip he was talking about. I still think it's safe to say, though, that he would remember whether or not his mom was camping with them the day before. I also find it really weird that he would say that she stayed behind if that didn't happen. He wouldn't have just said, no, mom didn't come. He said that she was there, but then she stayed. So this was enough for the officers to see some red flags and say that he needed to give up the van and it was no longer a choice. So Josh was not allowed to take the van or go back to his house. And when they bring this up, this is the first time in that interview where Josh shows any genuine emotion. He gets very heated very quickly. And when Detective Maxwell tells him what Charlie said, he gets defensive and says, she did not go with us. And unfortunately, after this interview, Josh didn't allow Charlie and Brayden to talk to the police anymore or basically any adults outside of his family. I've seen a lot of speculation that it may have not been the smartest choice for the police to tell Josh what Charlie said. Um, and it probably seemed like a good idea at the time. Obviously, hindsight is twenty twenty. Uh, but Josh was clearly angry that Charlie was talking and was probably surprised that he was talking and probably knew that it was only a matter of time before this would continue to get him in trouble. So fortunately, what Charlie said was enough for them to take Josh's van, whether he wanted them to or not. Unfortunately, the kids were never allowed to talk to anybody again, and that would put a dent in things. They also got a warrant to search the house finally. When the police did a second search of the van, they found that obviously everything from the night before had been cleaned out, and the van was mostly spotless. They brought in cadaver dogs to inspect the van, but there was no alerts to any kind of human remains or blood in the van. They did, however, find a couple of bags of trash. One of these bags was just a normal kitchen garbage bag with leftover food and stuff like that. In the second bag, there were pieces of sheetrock that looked like they'd been burned, and police thought it was possible that the sheetrock had acted as basically a workspace for him to burn something else. Uh, there were also wire fragments from a metal object 
and a metal object that was burned beyond recognition. I did some investigating to figure out if they ever identified this object, and according to a recent YouTube video from The Cold Podcast, by the time police identified or found this object, Josh had invoked his right to remain silent so they could not identify it because he wouldn't answer any questions. So basically, they just had to guess what it could have been. Originally, they thought maybe it was a cell phone or a computer hard drive, but they performed burn tests on similar objects, and they didn't melt down the same as the one that was found in this bag. Further down the road in this investigation, the burned metal object was sent to the FBI, who could still not 100% identify it, but they were able to say that the metal it was made of was mostly steel, calcium, and strontium. In this YouTube video from October of 2020, Dave Colley says that strontium is a metal that's often used in small motors, like the one that would have been found in a power tool. There were also those wire fragments that matched the exact length that would have been in a handheld drill that Josh definitely owned. Apparently, Josh had this set of tools that had multiple drills and saws, and they all kind of came in this big kit like that looked like a big uh, gym bag. And it didn't take long for the police to realize that in this bag of tools, everything was there except for one drill that was missing. Dave Colley made a very good argument in that YouTube video that it was possible Josh had been using this drill as a weapon, and that was what he used to murder Susan. Police also found evidence that Josh had been definitely burning things in the garage the night before their interview. There was a gas can, a torch, a fire extinguisher, and the bag that held this tool set. And like I said, when they checked this toolkit, one thing was missing, and it was a drill. They also did a test to see how long it would take to burn a drill like the one in Josh's kit, and it took over three hours to melt it down with a torch to look similar to the hunk of metal found in Josh's van. Seems like a pretty weird task to make on the night your wife went missing, you know, spending three hours burning metal in your garage, but that's just my opinion. Um, it was safe for the police to assume that Josh had these two bags of garbage in his van because he was planning to go dump them somewhere away from his house. Thankfully, he didn't think to do that on the way to the police station. Not that it gave them much of a clue because, like I said, they still haven't nailed down exactly what that object was, but it sure did look suspicious and seem at least a little odd to police. So they also took the time to place a tracker on Josh's van. And just like they suspected over the next two weeks, they found that Josh drove to multiple dumpsters around the neighborhood that were away from his house just dumping random things. So I'd say, say that's safe to say, red flag. They didn't find a ton of evidence at the Powell house either, but they did find a few small specks of blood that were on the tile near the living room floor where Josh had said that he did the rug doctor at Susan's request. They also found blood on the couch that had been recently cleaned, and there wasn't a ton of blood, but the small amounts that they did find definitely belonged to Susan. Detective Maxwell also told Josh that he would need to take his cell phone before Josh could leave the police station, but after he left, they realized that he had taken the SIM card out of this phone just like he did with Susan's. This is a big deal because police couldn't just quickly look through his phone to see where he'd been, who he'd been talking to. They would have to go through his cell phone company to get all of that info. And when they did eventually look into that phone record, they found that Josh had been using his phone the day that Susan went missing and the day before, but it had been turned off for quite a while. So he had called his dad, Steve, around noon the day that Susan was last seen, and then it was turned off until the following afternoon. While they were still trying to figure out where the family was, one of the Powell's neighbors had called Josh and he finally answered, and then he told this neighbor that he was on his way home from camping, that he was very close to the, po the Pony Express Trail. But when they looked at the phone records, this call had actually been taken while Josh was already back in West Valley, near his house. Then they were able to figure out that Josh drove back toward the Pony Express Trail, called Susan. She obviously didn't pick up because he had her phone. 
And then he left her a voicemail trying to, like, prove that he was near the Pony Express Trail. Essentially, he was just trying to cover his own ass, in my opinion. Eventually, Josh got tired of sitting around at the police station because, you know Josh, he hates to be inconvenienced. And since he wasn't under arrest, he was free to leave. So for the next 18 hours, no one heard from Josh, including Jennifer, who still had Charlie and Brayden. Finally, they found Josh in Tremont, Utah, which is about an hour away from West Valley where Josh lived. He had gotten himself to the Salt Lake City Airport and rented a car and had gotten a new cell phone. And when they were looking into the rental car, they saw that Josh had driven over 800 miles. When the police were like, uh, hey dude, where have you been? Come get your van. Josh was like, oh, I've just been driving aimlessly. You know, for 18 hours. I just can't with his stories. While Josh was on his 800-mile casual road trip, the police were talking with the people at Susan's job at Wells Fargo, and they found her paper trail, including the documents and the letter in her safe deposit box, detailing all of their marital struggles. Many of her co-workers said that they knew Susan had been unhappy in her marriage, and a couple of her co-workers even told the police about how odd Josh was. Apparently, at a work Christmas party, Josh had been talking to them about the true crime shows that he liked to watch, which, no judgment here, that's all of us true crime creeps chatting casually about serial killers at a Christmas party, so, I mean, we can't post too much judgment there, but the thing that was weird about these conversations was that Josh was talking about how easy it would be and how confident he was that he could get away with murder. His theory was that you could kill someone and then just go dump their body in one of the many abandoned mine shafts in the desert. Police would never find a body because the mines are so dangerous to search and they collapse very easily and there are so many that it would be impossible to search all of them. So basically, to Josh, getting away with murder just took hiding a body well enough that no one could prove you did it. So police also went to search this, some of the mines around the area and they also went to search the area of the Pony Express Trail that Josh said he took the boys camping and made a fire, but they searched miles of the desert and didn't find any signs of anyone camping there surprised? Not really. They also decided to do a search of some of the other mines that were a little outside of where Josh said he was, but it basically turned up nothing because exactly as Josh had said, the mines were very dangerous to search and there just are so many mines it would be impossible to search all of them. It's pretty obvious that from the minute the search for Susan began, Josh didn't even try to play the concerned husband role. He quickly stopped cooperating with police, including refusing to give passwords to the multiple computers they'd taken from his house, claiming he just forgot them, even though later in a wiretapped phone call they heard Josh specifically say that he knew the passwords, he just didn't want to give them to police. Because he's just awesome. So, Josh was supposed to go and take a voice stress test on December 14th, and a voice stress test is similar to a polygraph, but they use a computer software to record voices to help detect signs of deceit. Anyway, surprise, surprise, Josh didn't show up for that test. The police were able to get a warrant for a blood draw for Josh, and he did show up to that because he had to, and he showed up with a lawyer. So, police noted that at this time, he was extremely nervous and very worried when they took the blood from him, but then after that, he seemed to be fine. So, there was also a candlelight vigil that was organized in the neighborhood that Josh showed up to late and wouldn't speak to anyone while he was there. He did, however, find time to find um, the boys' daycare teacher, Debbie Caldwell, to let her know that the boys would no longer be coming to her daycare and his family would be watching them. That was the first of many times that Josh wouldn't allow Charlie and Brayden to be around adults outside of the Powell family. On December 18th, not even two weeks after Susan went missing, Josh took Charlie and Brayden to Steve's house in Puyallup, Washington. He said it was just for the holidays, but he didn't return back to Utah until January 6th, 2010. Not that there's anything wrong with him wanting to take the boys to go see his family, especially over the holidays at what should have been a difficult time for him, 
But also, wouldn't you want to be home in case they found Susan? Or if something came up in the case? Or if she came home? Instead, he just decided to pack up and leave. And then Josh and Michael also drove back to the house in West Valley at the beginning of January to pack up his house and permanently move to Washington. Your wife has been missing for almost a month and you're just going to leave the state. Totally normal. Super great. With no other leads or suspects, all eyes are on Josh. And Josh didn't want Susan's parents, Chuck and Judy Cox, to have any contact with the boys. He wouldn't tell them anything, and they're obviously extremely suspicious of him, especially because they know of his controlling behaviors and the weirdness with Steve. This was when the family rivalry started up. In my opinion, I think that Chuck and Judy Cox probably felt like they had no choice but to open up to the media about Susan and Josh's relationship. They were probably extremely frustrated that there wasn't more that could be done to get him to talk, so they did a press conference in February where they came forward and talked about the troubles that Josh and Susan had been having in their marriage. They also said that Susan had told multiple family members and friends that she'd been planning to leave Josh, which, of course, the media was eating up the story and everyone was extremely suspicious of Josh. After this press conference, people went and put up a ton of missing persons flyers and ribbons all over Steve's neighborhood, which I love that they did that because it probably made them all so mad. A few months later, in spring of 2010, another search was done in Simpson Springs, near where Josh said he'd taken the boys camping. Unfortunately, but not surprisingly, nothing turned up. And for the rest of 2010, there were, very, there were a few searches that the police did and they were trying to find leads. They spent a lot of time going through Josh's encrypted computers and hard drives that took way longer than it should have, obviously, like, before he wouldn't give them the passwords. Um, the media was still out for Josh, rightly so, in my opinion. But, of course, Steve Powell was there to save the day. Steve and Josh tried to make it out that they were being unfairly attacked by the Cox family, and they returned fire by starting a smear campaign of their own against Susan. A year after Susan went missing, Steve and Josh came forward with a theory that Susan ran away with some other man to Mexico. And apparently, a man named Stephen Coker went missing from Nevada a week after Susan disappeared. This was a weak theory that made absolutely no sense. It was just a coincidence that he went missing right after Susan did. Stephen and Susan didn't have any idea who each other were. They never would have had an interaction. And they lived almost six hours apart. There was no evidence to support this idea other than Steve just throwing it out there. People literally go missing every single day. You could just try to say any two random people ran away together. Like, it's a dumb theory and a dumb idea for cover-up stories, but they're just trying to, like, put anything out there that could possibly be an answer other than Josh did it. No one took this seriously, and it was dropped very quickly. Josh and Steve also had Susan's old journals that Susan's family tried to get back, and Steve would use these journals to try to paint a picture that Susan had been sexually repressed and possibly sexually abused when she was younger. Steve and Josh were threatening to post Susan's journals online, and the Cox family were doing everything they could to get these journals back. There was a point where they eventually, Josh tried to get a restraining order against the Cox family, and the Cox family tried to get a restraining order against Steve, and they basically gave them a, like, no contact order, so they each were not allowed to go within 500 feet of one another, but that didn't really stop the drama. As I got closer to the two-year mark of Susan's disappearance, police announced that they had a new lead, a big break in the case. Around this time, it seemed that all of their leads had dried up and they needed to do something to get Josh talking. They were trying to get him to slip up and say something stupid to get himself in trouble. So, in August of 2011, they decided to make a very public announcement, hoping that the media would go nuts with it and that they'd be able to catch Josh talking about it on a wiretap. They called this plan Operation Tsunami, and I just love when they give the sting operations cool names anyways. Back in May of 2010, so a year and a half-ish earlier, after working for a few months to get through Josh's computer data they found some search history that was very interesting. 
It turns out on December 6, 2009, just two days before Susan went missing, Josh had been Googling a mining town in Nevada called Ely. He had been looking up maps, weather reports, and traffic cameras. He also searched listings for the Motel 6 and Ramada Inn located in Ely. The West Valley police like this was a strong enough lead that they needed to look into it. So on August 19th, they very loudly and publicly announced that they were doing a search of some abandoned mines in Ely. This was basically just to bait the media, which of course worked, and they swarmed in like mosquitoes to get coverage of it, so it was everywhere. The second part of this plan was to wiretap Josh and Steve's phone calls and the landline that was at Steve's house. So they were listening closely to see what Josh would say about the search in Ely, and unfortunately, this search didn't turn up anything new. And publicly, in an interview with KSL News Radio, Josh was very calm and said, quote, It just didn't seem like they said anything. Honestly, that's kind of what went through my mind. I actually thought that they were going to be looking in hotels, apartments, things like that. That's what I hoped for, that they'd be looking for people, frankly, for Susan. Privately, though, on the wiretap on Josh's phone, they heard him say that police were wasting their time and wouldn't find anything in Ely, quote, that's for damn sure. Police also heard a phone call where Josh was talking to a media consultant on how to discuss how he could sound more sympathetic about his missing wife. So, my advice would be actually give a crap that your wife is missing. Personally, and you're probably all thinking the same thing, I think that this search in Ely didn't make him nervous and he was able to so calmly talk about it to the media because he's like, I know that she's not there. Like, if he genuinely had no idea where she was, he would be like, we can't get into it. We already know. We already know. There's no point in discussing. The other part of Operation Tsunami was to get a search warrant for the Powell House, mainly to get Susan's journals. To make this happen, police would need to get some real evidence these journals were important to the case and that they were evidence. So police politely suggested to Chuck Cox that he should organize a honkin' wave with Susan's picture and posters to get some renewed public interest in the case. Again, the police politely suggested to Chuck where the honkin' wave should happen. And in the cold podcast, Chuck talks about this plan, and he said that as things started to come together, he was like, oh, I'm the bait, which he said he was fine with, but it's funny to listen to him talk about it because... The police couldn't come right out and say, like, hi, we're trying to trap Steve and Josh. Can you be here at this time to do it? They had to make it seem like it was his idea. Um, So they just basically got him where he needed to be, and he did the rest. So the day of the honking wave comes. Chuck and Judy Cox, along with some of Susan's friends and supporters, all set up with purple balloons and posters of Susan. And they decided to do this outside of a busy Fred Meyer grocery store. Coincidentally, wink, wink. This was the grocery store that Josh and Steve shopped at, and somehow Chuck had guessed exactly where they would be and when they would normally shop there. Like Chuck said, he was absolutely bait, and we're here for it. And uh, the good news is, Steve was very quick to take the bait. There were photographers and news crews at the Honkin' Wave that police had actually sent to capture Josh and Steve on camera. Steve came flying in to defend Josh, saying the Honkin' Wave was harassment and they were attacking Josh. Personally, I'd think that the husband would be super stoked about an event showing support for his missing wife, but... We all know that he doesn't want any support for his missing wife. So Steve comes over and is being loud and obnoxious and playing the they're bullying us card. But Chuck had a plan and knew exactly what he needed to get from Steve. Chuck needed Steve to admit that having Susan's journals was him having evidence. He needed him to say that they were important to the investigation. And catching this on film would be the evidence the police needed to get a warrant for these journals. Luckily, Chuck was on his A-game and was able to get Steve riled up enough to start yelling about the journals. Steve was absolutely trying to make it sound like he had the upper hand, and having what I like to call smartest man in the world syndrome, he totally screwed himself by saying too much. It only took a few days for the police to get a search warrant for the Powell house. In order to do the search, the police knew that they needed to get Steve out of the house. 
Conveniently, Steve had a meeting with a possible employer about four hours away at a Red Lobster in Kennewick, Washington. In the cold podcast, Dave Colley asked Detective Maxwell if they set that up because later Steve wrote about it in his journal and thought that it might have been a setup by the police to get rid of him for the day. And in the podcast, Detective Maxwell just kind of laughs and is like, uh, maybe, maybe not. It's so funny. I love that interview so much. So once they were positive that Steve was occupied, conveniently, with no help from anyone in the police, they showed up to the Powell house with the search warrant. I just want to know if someone was actually there to talk to Steve about this pretend job or if he got there and, like, no one was there and he realized he'd been set up. It's not important. I'm just curious. Moving on. So, at the time, the Powell house was full. Steve, Josh, Charlie, and Brayden, and two of Josh's other siblings, John and Alina, were all living there. The police had to search through so much crap, it took them over 10 hours to search the house. There were tons of bookshelves full of books and papers, and it was like that in almost every room. There were boxes and boxes and boxes of stuff stacked in the hallways, and basically every inch of this house was just full of stuff. There were more than 20 members of law enforcement that were there to help with the search, and even then, it took them forever. Detective Gary Sanders, who was one of the detectives on the scene, said, quote, A hoarder is your biggest nightmare on a search warrant just because you know you have to go through every item. You want to make sure that there's no evidence tucked away, end quote. And there were definitely things tucked away in this creepy house. In Josh's room, they found an envelope full of photos of a mine that was located in Utah called the Blind Miner of the Wasatch. Weird. Just pictures of a mine, just because. There were also papers on his desk that had notes about Susan's journals and plans for a website that he and Steve had been working on, including a checklist that had items like, quote, throw out more theories, like on your to-do list, like come up with more BS theories that can be thrown to the media. They also found Susan's journals, among other stuff in Josh's room. They found a few interesting things in Josh's room, but nothing too horrible or inflammatory. However, when they got into John's room, it was a little spooky and extra cluttered. He had a hangman's noose hanging from a wooden frame, and also drawings that he had made of swords stabbing vaginas. We hate to see it. They also found bags of nail clippings and hair. Barf. Then the search of Steve's room kicked it up a disturbing notch. To start, they found three binders full of sheet music that Steve had written. Steve had this little side hobby of writing and singing his own music. I can't talk about it without kind of wanting to laugh because it's just horrendous. Um, these songs were all surrounding his obsession with his daughter-in-law, Susan. And when he performed these songs, he called himself Stephen Chantry. You can find clips of these songs online and they play them in the cold podcast. And every time I hear them, it gives me the weirdest chills. Even talking about it right now, I'm kind of like, ugh. It just gives me the creepy crawlies. They're garbage, and the lyric, quote, Can you feel my love and tender care, strong enough to reach you anywhere, speaks very loudly about how no matter what Susan did or where she went, she could not escape his creepy clutches. Then they opened Steve's walk-in closet and found a locked filing cabinet. Inside the cabinet was so much worse than crappy love songs. In one drawer, they found one of Susan's bras and a blouse, and a plastic container full of Susan's dirty underwear. Remember, Josh and Susan lived with Steve way back in 2001, which means he'd had these for 10 years. Yikes. There were also a ton of photos that he'd taken of Susan without her knowledge, and even some of Josh and Susan's wedding photos where he'd cut Josh's face out of them. Then to kick it up another horrifying notch, there were multiple bags of Susan's used tampons that were dated. Again, 10 years earlier. There were also used cotton balls from when Susan had used them for nail polish remover and nail clippings, just like in John's room. The apple doesn't fall far from the horrifying tree, does it? In the second drawer, they found porn DVDs and some VHS tapes. 
they started scanning these tapes and saw that they were more videos that Steve had taken of Susan and multiple other women. They also found 15 notebooks completely full. This was around 2,200 pages that were 10 years of his insane, intense journaling about his obsession with Susan. I honestly feel really bad for the officers who got stuck reading those. Yuck. When detectives started digging deeper into the photos and videos from Steve's room, they found something even more disturbing than they'd expected. There were over 1,600 images and videos of the young girls who lived next door to the Powell's house a couple of years earlier. Steve took these photos from his own bedroom window that faced the second-story bathroom window of these little girls who were only 8 and 10 years old. The police were quickly able to get an arrest warrant for Steve on felony charges, which was a win. On September 22, 2011, police waited for Steve to get home, and when he did, they quickly grabbed him. During the arrest, John and Alina came out to see what was going on. The police told him that Steve was under arrest and that they would also be taking Charlie and Brayden because they didn't feel they were safe at the Powell house. A detective chatted with Charlie and Brayden and tried to make it seem really positive, like the boys were just going to go on a little, like, overnight fun thing with their friends. And the boys were happy to talk to this detective. They didn't seem, like, freaked out or anything. They were put into a car with a social worker who noted that the boys were excited to get out for the night. Of course, they were so young that they didn't know what was really going on. They thought they were just going to go play with some other kids. It wasn't a big deal. But they were actually heading to a foster home for the night. Meanwhile, Josh was upstairs hiding out in his room. His children are being taken, his father's being arrested, and he's hiding out without a word to say. He didn't fight for them at all. He was completely unemotional about the boys being taken, and everyone thought that was very odd. By the end of the week, Chuck and Judy Cox were granted temporary custody of Charlie and Brayden, which was a win. In court, Josh, of course, kept saying that he didn't want them with the Cox family, that he didn't trust them, and that the boys would be in danger if they were living with Chuck and Judy Cox, which I find absurd, seeing as the situation at Steve's house was disgusting. Josh even went as far as telling the court that he would rather the boys be in foster care than to be with Susan's parents. Again, just ridiculous. Meanwhile, Steve was being held in jail and Josh called him to promise they'd get him a good lawyer. Josh wasn't even worried or upset by Steve's actions. He was literally the reason his boys were taken from him and he was still, like, Team Steve all the way. Steve's response to all of the items found in his creepy bedroom was that he was embarrassed that people saw it and that he wished he would have moved the items out of his house before the search. He didn't see anything wrong with what he'd done. He didn't apologize. He just was embarrassed that people saw it. Seems like incorrect emotions, but not my place. Now that Charlie and Brayden were temporarily living with their grandparents, the court decided to give Josh supervised visitation hours. Josh demanded that Chuck and Judy could not take the boys to church, so their visits would be every Sunday for three hours while Chuck and Judy went to church. At this point, Charlie was seven and Brayden was five, and they were very talkative. They were looked at by doctors and interviewed by a therapist, and they seemed to be mostly happy and healthy. Charlie was apparently very smart for his age and would speak like a tiny adult, and there were a couple of odd things that Charlie would say. While he was staying with the foster family the night Steve was arrested, he told the foster parents something like, Mormons are evil and they're trying to kill us, and clearly this was something that he'd picked up at Steve's house. There was also a time that Charlie drew pictures of his family as part of therapy or like when he was at daycare. And he once drew a picture of the family going camping with the minivan. And he drew himself and Brayden and Josh. And when the teacher asked, like, where's your mom? He said, in the trunk. They also would say things like, we aren't allowed to talk about Susan. Or they would say that their mom was dead. It's just so sad to me. And it had to have been so confusing for these little tiny kids to be trying to process this when no one was, like, giving them a healthy space to process it. 
So eventually Josh was given an evaluation by a psychologist whose name was James Manley. And after talking to Josh, James said that Josh seemed mostly normal, but that he did get defensive very easily. He didn't drink or do drugs, but he did look at porn, which they weren't too concerned about, since it was nothing violent or illegal. He was very to the point about Susan's disappearance, and James said that the answers he gave sounded very well rehearsed, which isn't surprising because he's had a couple of years of giving the same answers over and over and really nailing down that story. Josh also talked about how he didn't see anything wrong with how he'd behaved in his marriage or as a parent, and he blamed all of his issues and problems on Chuck Cox and the LDS Church. James said he was going on about it almost to the point of delusion and how the church was basically out to get him. James said that Josh was incapable of seeing anything he did as wrong and that he couldn't see his own flaws and had major narcissistic traits that he thought were affecting his relationship with Charlie and Brayden. Basically, he saw Charlie and Brayden as extensions of himself. He didn't see them as kids. They were like, quote, little Josh 1 and little Josh 2, end quote. In court, Josh was told that he had to move out of Steve's house before he would be allowed to have overnight visits with the boys. So Josh rented a three-bedroom house near Charlie's school, and James went to the house with Charlie and Brayden to observe how Josh acted as a parent. He's not stupid, so obviously he was on his best behavior and playing nicely with the boys and being patient and attentive. And later, it came out that they kind of felt that Josh wasn't actually living at this house. He had just rented it to make it seem like he wasn't living at Steve's house anymore. But there wasn't enough stuff there to really make it appear like he was actually living there. And that's something they found out way later down the road. Anyways, multiple people in Josh's family wrote letters to the court describing how wonderful Josh was as a father and how unfairly he was being treated. However, there were multiple people who saw how Josh really was when he wasn't on his best behavior. There was a Precious Gems club that Josh joined when they moved to Washington, and a woman named Nancy was the vice president of this club. Nancy wrote a letter to Charlie and Brayden's social worker after hearing about all these letters and about how great Josh was, and she felt like she needed to come forward. Apparently, Josh would bring Charlie and Brayden to these club meetings that really weren't for little kids. They had been told multiple times, like, hey, you can't have kids here, this is a dangerous space where people are using power tools. But Josh just continued to bring them with him, because who knows why. So there was a time that Josh was showing Charlie how to use a rock grinder, and Josh wasn't able to keep an eye on Charlie and Brayden at the same time, so he just kind of stuck Brayden in a corner and let him sob loudly for over an hour without paying any attention or even glancing in his direction. Finally, someone else went over to Josh and was like, hey, your kid is hysterical, what are you doing? And Nancy said that she watched Josh walk over and awkwardly pat Charlie on the head and say, sometimes we just need to let them cry. I'm not here to shame anyone for their parenting, and obviously... Little kids sometimes just get upset because their big emotions are too much for their tiny bodies. But to bring your kid to a place that really isn't meant for kids and then let him scream his head off for an hour, not great. Especially when people close to Josh are trying to act like he would never let his kids stay upset or feel neglected. Nancy also said that at these meetings, Josh would just let the boys roam and never really pay attention to what they were doing unless he saw another adult trying to talk to one of them. Then he was right there to make sure they didn't speak to anybody but him. For a while, Josh was having supervised visits with Charlie and Brayden at a visitation center where other families were also having visits, and eventually people started complaining about Josh because, yikes, he's suspected of killing his wife and his dad's in jail for voyeurism and child pornography. So eventually the court decided that Josh could have the visits at his home as long as he had moved out with Steve, so that's when that three-bedroom um, house came into play. Josh was doing everything that he could to get Charlie and Brayden back, and his social worker did say that it was obvious that Josh loved his boys and they loved him. By November of 2011, the Washington court was getting closer to giving full custody of Charlie and Brayden back to Josh. 
However, back in West Valley, Utah, the police are sitting on some big evidence. Unfortunately, I think because of jurisdiction laws and laws around sharing specific evidence, the West Valley PD had to have special permission to share this specific evidence with CPS. They were able to get the permission only when it seemed that Josh was about to get the boys back full-time. On February 1st, 2012, the Coxes and Josh were having another custody hearing, and in court that day, the evidence from West Valley was finally presented. Back in 2009, when they were searching Josh's encrypted computers, the, detec the detectives found hundreds of disturbing cartoon images that showed simulated child pornography, bestiality, and incest. After finding out about these images, James Manley, um, the psychologist, he said that the boys should not go back to Josh full-time until he had a psychosexual evaluation, which is basically a really, really intense lie detector test that would show Josh's reactions to different things regarding sexuality. The judge ruled that Charlie and Brayden would need to stay with Chuck and Judy Cox for the time being. When Josh found out about this psychosexual evaluation, he talked to another psychologist to ask what would happen during this evaluation. And Josh had never taken a polygraph test ever. He never submitted to one. So if he was hooked up to this psychosexual evaluation, they could also ask him anything they wanted about Susan to see his reactions. So this was kind of a breaking point for Josh because he realized that he would have to be put through a lie detector. Even though Charlie and Brayden were still under temporary contestity, custody, that was a very odd word for my brain to make up, temporary custody of Chuck and Judy Cox, the court had evidence that Josh needed a further psych evaluation and for some reason he was still allowed to have supervised visits with the boys. And this is something that is majorly scrutinized in this case and it's easy to see why. Uh, I don't normally do trigger warnings because you guys know the rules. You're listening to a true crime podcast. That's your warning. But I am going to warn you here because the next part is very upsetting and involves violence against children. So please feel free to skip forward a couple of minutes if you need to. Here we go. On February 5th, 2012, a social worker named Elizabeth Griffin showed up to Josh's rental house with Charlie and Brayden for their weekly Sunday visit. That, in my opinion, shouldn't have been happening. Uh, Josh answered the door and told the boys, quote, I have a surprise for you. The boys quickly ran inside because they were excited to see their dad, and Elizabeth was still a few feet behind them when Josh slammed and locked the front door. When she got up to the door, she knocked a few times and eventually started pounding on the door. She rang the doorbell over and over and was shouting at Josh to open the door. And then Elizabeth said that at this point she could hear the boys crying and yelling and realized that she could smell gasoline. Elizabeth quickly jumped into action and called 911. I'm not going to play the 911 call, but if you've heard it, you know how absolutely ridiculous it is. Um, if you haven't heard it and you can sit through 911 calls, I recommend you listen to it because it sheds a lot of light on the next couple of minutes. <laughs> um, they played a lot in documentaries and podcasts, and every time it just makes my blood boil because it's so frustrating. Elizabeth very clearly explains that she is on a supervised, court-ordered visit. She says that the boys are inside and Josh will not let her in. And she gives the address and says that Josh is being weird. She needs immediate help because she smells gasoline. Elizabeth tells this all to the um, dispatcher and she explains multiple times who Josh is and that he could possibly dangerous, possibly be dangerous. Elizabeth stays very calm, but eventually she kind of asks, like, how long are you going to take? Where are they? And this dispatcher says to her, as soon as an officer is available, they'll be there. They have to see the life threatening situations first. And Elizabeth is like, yes, this might be one of those. The way the dispatcher talks to her, he sounds so irritated and like he's bothered that she called. So Elizabeth decided to move her car across the street because she was worried about the gasoline smell. 
and unfortunately she was 100% right to be worried because not long after she moved, the house went up in flames. So Elizabeth was sitting in her car, completely helpless, freaking out when she heard sirens. The sirens sounded like they were getting closer, and then they sounded like they were getting farther away. She finally decided to call 911 again, and again, this dispatcher is confused and asks if she was calling about a fire at a certain address, and Elizabeth says, yes, I just called. No one's here. And the dispatcher said to her, we have an engine there already. So Elizabeth is literally sitting in front of this house, watching it happen. There is clearly not a fire engine anywhere near them, and it's just this, these 911 calls are so frustrating. So finally, a fire truck shows up to the house, but it's obviously too late. It was 22 minutes after Elizabeth's first call for anyone to show up. Eventually, they found Josh, Charlie, and Brayden in the back bedroom of the house. They also found a hatchet near the bodies and discovered that Charlie and Brayden both had multiple wounds from the hatchet. The official cause of death was listed as carbon monoxide poisoning. I can't even imagine how awful it was for Susan's family and friends to find out what happened. Uh, In my opinion, basically everyone who has heard this case... There was absolutely no reason that Josh should have been allowed to have those kids at his house. From what I understand, and I'm not a professional here, this is just what I've gathered, reunion of families is kind of the goal for CPS. Obviously, people don't want to rip families apart, I get that, but when there's an open investigation where one parent is missing and the only person of interest in that missing person's case is the other parent, I just don't understand why they would think it's appropriate for him to be alone with these kids, especially after the stuff that happened with Steve and the stuff that they found on Okay, I'm moving on or I will literally yell about this for eternity. (sighs) As police looked into the events leading up to Josh blowing up his house, they found quite a few things that showed he'd been planning this attack very well. In the days before, Josh had taken a bunch of money out of his bank account and transferred the rest to Alina. He cleaned out a storage unit he had and took some stuff to the dump and then he mailed the keys to Alina. He took Charlie and Brayden's toys and books out of the house and donated them, which I think is so weird, but knowing Josh, he was probably like, I spent good money on those. I can't set them on fire. Speculation, of course, but seriously, ew. Josh emailed Alina to give her instructions on how to handle his property, the life insurance policies, etc. Josh also left Alina a voicemail the morning of February 5th where he said he was calling to say goodbye, that he was not able to go on anymore, and he was sorry for all the people he'd hurt. Alina called 911 after she listened to this message, but she couldn't remember Josh's exact address, so there wasn't much that they could do to look into this, and obviously by that point it was too late. Josh also apparently bought two gas cans and had poured them throughout the house. Josh's family was mostly shocked that he did this. Steve was still being held in jail when it happened and refused to comment, but he didn't seem upset at all by the deaths of his son and grandsons. Two weeks later, he invoked the Fifth Amendment and refused to ever speak about Susan or her disappearance again. People obviously believe that he knew something about it, but he was still defending Josh. Charlie and Brayden were buried at a Powallop Cemetery in one casket, and their headstone had a picture of Charlie and Brayden with Susan and the words, United in Heaven, printed on it. There was yet more drama with the Powells and Cox families when they tried to have Josh buried next to Charlie and Brayden. The Cox family, and basically anyone with common sense, were completely against this idea. And I read an article uh, from the Seattle Times that said that the Crime Stoppers of Tacoma Pierce bought the plots next to Charlie and Brayden so that Josh could never be buried next to them. I just love that so much. Crime Stoppers does so many good things. They were able to raise like $20,000 in one day to be able to afford to buy those plots basically for the Cox family um, so that Josh wouldn't be able to be buried near them. Susan's family didn't even want them buried anywhere near the cemetery and eventually Josh was buried somewhere else. 
Obviously, with Josh gone, all of the leads in Susan's disappearance came to a complete halt. There were a few more searches of some of the mines near Simpson Springs where Josh supposedly took the boys camping, but nothing came up there. So I'm just going to go over a few things that happened in the aftermath of Josh's death. So let's talk about Josh's younger brother, Michael, for a minute. Michael had always backed Josh and Steve, and in the months following Susan's disappearance, Josh and Michael seemed especially close. In August of 2011, detectives found out that back in December of 2009, not long after Susan disappeared, Michael had sold his Ford Taurus for $100 to a salvage yard in Pendleton, Oregon. Apparently, Michael drove with Alina to Utah right after Susan went missing, and when they were driving back, they had some kind of car trouble and called a tow truck. And instead of getting towed to the nearest town to get fixed, Michael instead had the car towed almost 100 miles to Lindell's Auto Salvage, which happens to specialize in crushing cars. Because that makes sense, right? You have a minor breakdown, you don't fix it, you just crush it. Detectives were able to put together that the car broke down in Baker, Oregon, which is about 400 miles from where Josh was living in West Valley at the time. Remember when Josh got a rental car and put a little over 800 miles on it right after Susan went missing? That might mean nothing. It might be a total coincidence, or it might be very important. I'm just throwing it out there. To this day, they've never been able to confirm where Josh went in that rental car, but 800 miles in a day is a lot for someone to just be driving aimlessly like Josh said he was. Detectives find out about this car at the salvage yard, and they gave them a call, and hooray, somehow the car was still there after two years. The detectives got there just in time because apparently... The salvage yard had just started the process of paperwork where they were going to then crush the car down into an unrecognizable cube about a week later, so timing was everything with this one. The detectives were able to take a good boy cadaver dog to the salvage yard and let him get to work. There were dozens of cars that the dog wandered around, and then he alerted, meaning that he sniffed out the odor of human remains. And wouldn't you know it, it was Michael Powell's old Ford Taurus. Shocking. The officers took the car for further examination and called Michael Powell to set up an interview with him. Michael agreed to the interview and they started asking him some questions. He was being somewhat cooperative until they brought up this car. Suddenly, his whole demeanor changed. And Detective Quinlan, who was interviewing him, said, quote, He said he would not tell police what he knew about Josh's involvement or what he knew about Susan specifically. He didn't deny it. End quote. Apparently, this interview lit a fire under Michael because he called a satellite mapping company in Colorado to see if they could send him detailed images of the salvage yard in Pendleton, clearly to see if his car was still at the tow yard. Unfortunately, nothing could ever be based on the DNA found in Michael's car. I assume that's because it had been sitting outside for two years, and by then a lot of stuff would have been washed away or dirtied or ruined, whatever. So then, fast forward to February of 2013, just about a year after... Josh blew up his home. Chuck Cox got a very detailed and interesting tip that Michael may have buried Susan's remains at a property near Scotts Mills, Oregon. Police thought this was a very good lead and went to interview Michael again about his knowledge or involvement with this specific property. Of course, he said he didn't know anything, etc., etc. However, five days after police spoke to Michael about this property on February 12, 2013, Michael committed suicide by jumping from the top of a seven-story parking garage taking anything he knew with him. Let's go ahead and wrap up Steve's story as well. On August 21st, 2013, Steve was convicted on the voyeurism and child pornography charges and sentenced to five years in prison. He was also given 17 months credit for the time he'd already spent in jail waiting for his trial and sentencing. He was released in July of 2017, and a year later, on July 23rd, 
Steve died at a Tacoma, Washington hospital after having some kind of a heart complication. Until the very end, Steve defended Josh. But once the cold podcast started in 2019, Dave Colley was able to share some of Steve's journals from the days when Susan was first missing, and those journals showed a very different story. In the hours after finding out about Susan's disappearance, Steve wrote that he feared the worst. He suspected that Josh had killed Susan and disposed of her body, and as we know, Steve kept very excruciatingly detailed journals. So, in these first few days following Susan's disappearance, he was writing a minute-by-minute playbook of what was going on. He said that he felt like Josh's alibi story, quote, sounded weak and unconvincing. Steve even wrote that Michael and Alina thought the story was weird as well, and they told Josh that he needed to tighten up his alibi. He talked about how strange it was that Josh had bought a welder and a rug doctor carpet cleaner just a couple of weeks before Susan went missing, and he even went as far as saying, quote, Years ago, I made up my mind that Josh was, of my kids, capable of doing such a thing. I want Josh to be with his boys, but I am also angry at him for murdering such a beautiful woman. That he could do such a thing once suggests he could do it again. If things go too badly, he could murder the boys and hang himself, end quote. Even with all that, Even with all those thoughts, Steve still stood by Josh's side. I read somewhere that police basically think that Josh never told Steve the full story, that he didn't know any of the exact details, but still, yikes. One last thing I wanted to mention was that in the cold podcast, they talked about the possibility that those cartoon porn images that were found on Josh's computer may have not actually belonged to him. Apparently, Josh and Susan had purchased that computer used, And detectives were later able to determine that these images had been downloaded before Josh and Susan owned the computer. As we know, that was the final nail in the coffin for Josh, and it was the reason that the court wanted him to do that psychosexual evaluation and polygraph, which was the last straw for him. However, here's my thing. Personally, just my opinion, don't get mad at me. If those pictures were not Josh's, and it's been proven that they were on the computer before he owned it, why wouldn't he just say that? Why wouldn't he just say, those aren't mine, we bought the computer used, whatever. If he had nothing to hide, then do the evaluation, do the polygraph test, be done and cleared. Personally, I feel like the reason that he thought he was screwed wasn't because of the computer images. I think it was because he knew he would not be able to pass a polygraph test if they started asking him questions about Susan. That's what I think anyway. I would love to know your thoughts over on Instagram. Go tell me. Go tell me all your things. So unfortunately, that's where our story ends. Because anyone who had answers is no longer here, and it's so sad to say and so frustrating to me because it's been over 10 years now, and Susan's story is still unfinished. As much as I hate to say it, I really don't think that we will ever know what truly happened. I would love to know your guys' opinions, though. If you have a differing opinion, are you one of the few people who respectfully don't yell at me about it, but do you think there's a possibility that Josh is innocent, or do you think that there's just more that we don't know? I would love to know. Thank you so much for sticking with me through this very long journey, two whole episodes. I hope that you liked this two-part story. If you did, make sure that you rate, review, subscribe, all the things. And don't forget to send me your real-life stories. I want to hear about, you know, the time you lived next to a cemetery and saw a ghost, or the teacher you thought was a creep in school turned out to actually be a murderer, or the time you saw a Bigfoot. Literally. Anything true crime, true crime adjacent, I want to know. Send your stories to tgicrimeday at gmail.com. I would really love to do a proper listener files episode with multiple stories to tell. So send those to me. Thanks again for being here and I will be back soon with another story. Bye.